Hello, I'm James Fowey. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and stories. Today, we are talking about Mobile Suit Gundam. Mobile Suit Gundam takes place in the Universal Century of 0079. Earth has become overpopulated, and to deal with that, humans have moved to colonies in space. One of the colonies, the Principality of Xeon, has broken away and started a war of quote-unquote independence against the Earth Federation. Gundam follows Earth Federation refugees on the ship White Base as they try to escape with a new experimental Gundam, or giant robot that is piloted from the inside, meant for war, to Earth. The show was released in 1979 and has since spawned many sequels and retellings. It was created by Yoshiyuki Tomino and is considered by many to be one of the best animes ever made. Mm. James is going to talk about... What are you talking about? Uh, I'm going to be talking about the uh, older genres that came before and influenced Gundam and how it came to define one of its own. And I will be talking about why Gundam is such a big deal, because I didn't know. <laughs> but luckily, we have a podcast. Yay! <laughs> All right, so should I get into it? Yeah. All right. So uh, I want to explain the creative context that Mobile Suit Gundam was produced in and look at the unique qualities that made it such an influential success. Uh, the television show and film trilogy, and we're really looking at the film trilogy, are born out of several older genres, but then begin one of their own. And so I'm going to take you through the genres of melodrama, space opera, mecha, and then the subgenre of real robot mecha. And so we'll be talking about what those things are, their historical notes, characteristics, and, and I'll talk about how they apply to Gundam. So beginning with melodrama, uh, some would say that it is a work in which the plot and action are more important than the portrayal of the characters. Uh, others would say that it's big characters and exciting events, and uh, everyone pretty much agrees that it's intended to get an emotional response, and, and the style of these pieces tends to be sensational and extravagant. I think of soap operas. Yes, soap operas are very melodramatic. Uh, the historical origin of the term... Uh, comes from the French. Uh, it was a <laughs> <laughs> all right, <laughs> uh, but it's a it it originally just means uh, plays with music. Um, but it would come on. To, it would come to take a larger meaning as a genre that would dominate the 19th century of theater. Uh, not only in France, but all over the English-speaking world as well. I had a great deal of help in this part of the segment from the website elephantmelodrama.com. So just full credit to them. So uh, melodramas became popular after the French Revolution. They were the people's theater, or as I like to say, we've killed all the nobility, what do you want to watch? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, critics at the time and the people writing the plays often said that uh, melodramas were a new morality uh, in the place of traditional institutions that were being thrown down and if not thrown down, listened to less. Uh, so the people, these are, are, are uh, shows that are about the people, for the people, and it's the people's morality. And 
Yes. Were they considered sophisticated in any way? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Looked down upon and panned. Um, but anyway, it, very uh, commercially successful. Uh, the Industrial Revolution helped create the audience. You have all mm-hmm. these people moving into the city and they'd like some entertainment. You can get them in a big group. Um, and I Dispos- already mentioned. Maybe some disposable income. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you got the job in the city. Let's do it. Uh, now, in the 19th century, it was a really big deal. A hundred years, the melodramatic format dominated theater. Theater moved on, but um, I really don't think any other forms have. Uh, melodrama is still very popular, um, well, became popular in radio, uh, influenced film, comics, television. Um, one of the professors talking about melodrama said even the format that we take our evening news oh, in. Oh, yeah. So wait, is Shakespeare not considered melodrama? No, I don't think so, especially because of uh, his love of the aristocracy and nobility. Oh, so melodrama is more like a everyday people type of thing. Yes, in their uh, situations and I a lot of it. and yeah, and and we'll, I was thinking of it as like dramatic. Yes, well, there are qualities I'm sure in Shakespeare that can be considered melodramatic. <laughs> a lot of these, oh, people don't really know. They think I'm a, a man, but actually I'm a woman in disguise, and I'm in love with you. Like. Yeah, that's that sounds like melodrama. To yeah, me. it does sound like melodrama, but it, it lacks some of those other elements of the form, which we'll get into with the help of Dr. Janice Norwood of the School of Humanities of the University of Hertfordshire and Jim Davis, a professor of theater studies at the University of Warwick, who were very helpful in interviews on that site I just mentioned before, elephantmelodrama.com. So uh, Norwood points out that uh, melodramas tend to have at least one scene of sensation. Uh, For instance, before it was ever a a trope in silent film, melodramas were the first place where on stage you had a villain tie someone to a railroad track that had an oncoming train. (laughs) Is the train going to come on the stage? It's very exciting. Oh, they brought brought fire engines on the stage. They did all kinds of things, um, some of which were dangerous. Uh, Anyway, nine out of ten times, she says the bad guy is an aristocrat, but even when it's not, it's always someone further up the chain. Okay. So uh, it's also a genre that she says appeals to the emotions rather than the intellect. And that's part of why she says the high and mighty have always derided it. Now, Davis says that it usually has a hero and a heroine and you have a villain that's causing them problems and sounds like really the villain is the protagonist. He says the villain drives the plot, all the things that these people have to solve and escape. And uh, it's from melodrama that we get music underscoring the emotion. And helping the spectacle, mm-hmm. which is so funny because there's serious art forms, um, like very, you know, uh, serious films that are made that are borrowing from the form of melodrama to create an emotional effect mm. in the audience. If you told them that, they might be upset. <laughs> Maybe they would be. I Well, anyway, um, one of the themes of uh, that you have that every, I think everyone recognizes from melodrama is good versus evil. Um, but Davis points out that this uh, in the 19th century was often the rural country versus the urban town. Um, also important in melodrama, the good guys win. Mm. I think we all grew up watching a lot of melodrama. Anyway, um, also he points out that um, in the 19th century, melodrama as a uh, art format for the people um, was often vocal about injustices and exploitation of common people. So where do we see melodrama in Gundam? Uh, first off, the, the biggest thing, um, these are ordinary people in Mobile Suit Gundam that have been forced into combat. Uh, also, their military enemy isn't the only villain. We often are looking at their own generals in a negative light, um, and that's very intentional. Uh, the director, Tomino, says that one of the themes of Gundam is that adults are the enemy. And, and for children, 
Adults are further up the chain. Uh, of course, the situations are incredibly uh, dramatic. They're always in a, in a tight spot. And the technology is written in a way for the show that helps to make the battles more personal um, and have more of an emotional intensity. Uh, now, other things as far as plot that are very melodramatic, we have mysterious pasts, we have masked officers on vengeance quests, uh, and we have a moral message that's about peace and understanding and evolving beyond the limitations of the last generation. Okay, all melodramatic. Now, Mobile Suit Gundam as space opera. Now, space opera is the first genre that I thought of besides Mecca for Mobile Suit Gundam. It's where I first encountered the term as a teen, and I thought it must mean something really grand and great. And then It I, can be. It can be, but then when I looked it up, the, first, the, the simple definitions are melodrama in space or a space adventure. So, uh, the genre is thought to have started in the 1920s with short stories like E.E. E. Doc Smith's The Skylark of Space, which was in Amazing Stories in 1928. Also in Amazing Stories is something you've actually probably heard of, Buck Rogers' novella Armageddon 2419 AD by Philip Francis Nolan. Uh, of course, that inspired a competitor in Flash Gordon, uh, which was a comic by Alex Raymond that was first out in 1934. And I, I know Flash Gordon mostly because I know that it inspired Star Wars, which is also a space opera and actually ushered in a new wave of space operas when it came out in the late 1970s. Although you should know that the term space opera originally is meant to be demeaning. It was coined as a play on the uh, term horse opera, which is a hacky formulaic Western, and soap opera. We all know what soap operas are. Uh, and it was, quote, a hacky, grinding, stinking, outworn spaceship yarn. <laughs> Pretty mean stuff. But we should note that after Star Wars, when this new wave of uh, uh, space operas came out, from the 1980s onward, they started to get a lot of respect in literary circles, at least mm. science fiction literary circles. A tremendous number of Hugo Awards have gone to space operas. They are characterized, moving beyond the simple definition of a melodrama in space. They have adventure, they have romance, and it's big. We have big scale, big battles, big action, big stakes, and we... Sounds like a melodrama in space. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does. It does. But here's a twist. Complex characters and politics... Mm, that's against your more simple definition of melodrama. And you have a focus that can be on individual relationships and humanity amidst the large-scale action settings and new environments that space provides. Although it's also sometimes as simple as a space western. Oh, like, um, oh my gosh, what's it called? The Josh. Firefly yes. is a space opera. Yeah. Yeah. So, space opera elements in Gundam. Right off the bat, the opening voiceover tells us that half the populations of each side of this conflict have already been wiped out by the war, that each side has committed atrocities, and check out this space colony crashing into a city on Earth. Hey, it's pretty dramatic. We've got the politics, um, and it is not absolute good versus evil. That's another thing from uh, space operas. The good guys aren't all good. The bad guys aren't all bad. That's part of complex politics in this sense. 
Um, also, in Mobile Suit Gundam, living in space is causing humanity to evolve into new forms. Uh, there's such a thing as a new type, and that's a new kind of person whose psychic abilities make them better able to understand others, but also better at using the tools of war. And that's that, ooh, what is humanity? How can we examine it? But using the frontier of space. Now, some people don't call Mobile Suit Gundam a space opera because they say it's already too much of another genre, a mecca. Now, the New York Public Library, surprise, surprise, has a, a <laughs> webpage that gives a great rundown of the history of mecha, so I'm going to be using that. They call it a genre of Japanese manga and anime that heavily features or focuses on mechanical innovation. Robots, cyborgs, androids, and space stations, for example, all fall under the wide umbrella of mecha. However, robots are usually the primary focus. Um, and that's a great way of putting it, so I'm taking it right off their site. The historical origin of Mecha is actually the historical origin of all anime. It's an Osama Tezuka's Mighty Adam, or Astro Boy in the United States, which came out in 1952. Uh, that's about a scientist who makes a boy robot, and the boy robot saves the day uh, over and over again. Uh, Mitsuteru Yokoyama then came out with Tetsujin 28 Go!, known as Gigantor in the United States. That was in 1956. That's a father who dies and leaves his 12-year-old son a giant robot. <laughs> the son uses the giant robot to save the day over and over again. Now, in 1972, we have a real big innovation where Gonagai comes out with Mazinger Z. And in that... I've heard of that one. Yes, we actually consider doing it as an episode. Uh, in that, an evil scientist, Dr. Hell unleashes an army of ancient giant robots. A good scientist, to thwart him, builds a giant robot and leaves it to his grandson. The grandson climbs inside it, first time that had ever been done in a humanoid robot, and saves the day. <laughs> Over and over again. <laughs> Sensing a theme. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to tell you about the characteristics of these types of mecha because when Gundam came out, it was so different from these shows that they had to come up with a new thing to call it. They couldn't just call it mecha. They couldn't just call these things mecha. They said, you know what? This stuff is super mecha. <laughs> and that includes one or several unique robots. They can be magical, ancient, or they're a very special new invention. And a lot of times they follow a monster of the week format. Um, and sometimes too, and we're all familiar with this, I think, multiple super robots will combine to form one extra super robot, like in Power Rangers or Voltron. Now, in Gundam, we do have a very special suit, Gundam RX-782, that is what the hero is piloting. Amuro Ray is in a very new prototype. Um, and there are giant robots all over the place, and they're the most essential and cool weapon in the conflict. But it's not super mecha. It's its own thing. It's a real robot mecha. Claire is laughing at my enthusiasm, but it's okay, folks. I bet you're into real robot mecha, too. But I wasn't even laughing at your enthusiasm. It's just more that, like, what is this show? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. It's not a melodrama. It's not a mecha. <laughs> Yes. Well, it's all these things and more. So uh, you can call, according to the New York Public Library, good on you guys, uh, a real robot mecha features robots that are more realistic, science-based, and mass-produced, usually for war. So 
Their origin is in Mobile Suit Gundam, but then they're followed by some other series that imitate them, like Shoji Kawamori's Super Dimensional Fortress Macross in 1982. Now that is really a space opera too. It's real robot and real space opera. The creator described his series as a love triangle against the backdrop of great battles. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, it sounds like everything you want. Oh, I would watch. I need to watch it. The more I've read about it over the years, oh, yeah. Um, that got adapted into Robotech in 1985, which our American audience is probably more familiar with. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that I have to mention in the real robot genre is what we're pairing Mobile Suit Gundam with. Mm-hmm. Our next episode will be about Neon Genesis Evangelion, which came out in 1995. That's uh, Hideaki Anno. Um And we'll get way into that next episode, but know that that is also in a genre Mobile Suit Gundam created. So, characteristics of the genre. Real robots used by governments and large corporations. There are scientific reasons provided for why they're so advantageous. And there are logistical problems in using them. Maintenance, fuel, ammo. And they're often fighting alongside other weapons of war. It's just, it's not all mecha. That's part of a real robot mecha. Now, The elements in Gundam are many because, of course, this is what started the genre. Um, The mobile suits in Gundam are derived from piloted robots that were used to build the space colonies. That was very important to Tomino that they had a real reason for existing. And, of course, they are mass-produced. Even that Gundam prototype, they're going to make more. There are more coming. And they run out of ammo. They run out of fuel. They need so much maintenance to keep up and running. It's a point of tension in the show. And the rules of science fiction that it provides, the Manofsky technology, mm-hmm. it adheres to it. So just as it's a, more hard science. I mean, it's not really hard science, but it tries to make it make sense. Yes, much more than previous mecha shows. So I just want to say a few things. Uh, of course, it's obviously come up along the way of me describing how it fits into different genres that it doesn't fully fit into them. Um, unlike in the stereotype of a melodrama, we are dealing with characters' internal conflicts, the tough choices they're making. They have arcs. They grow as people. And as far as happy endings go, one of the, you know, nicknames for this director is Kill 'em All Tomino. If he's killing the heroes too, how happy can the ending be? And it's not absolute good versus absolute evil, um, as in many melodramas. Hard to say it's not a space opera, unless you say it's just too mecha to be that way. Um... But obviously it's not a super mecha because the two best pilots in the show, Amuro Ray and Char Aznable, they can't save or ruin the day by themselves. And even though there's some hard science, when it gets into new types, that whole idea of humanity evolving, that's a scientific prompt for something magical. And, uh, you know, I'm down for the blend. Very cool. It's nice to see where it all comes from. I guess that's the point of our podcast. Yeah. I was so excited for this. I know you were. I was less so, though I did. (laughs) We'll get into it. (laughs) Tell me about how it was made. Okay. So I had heard of Gundam before because I think you and Kyle had talked about it so much, um, but I actually didn't know how big a deal it was until I was doing this research. Um, On websites and, you know, Tell me if I'm wrong. I have seen Gundam compared to Star Trek to explain just what it is to Japanese culture. The word Gundam has become synonymous with the word Mecca in Japan. So mm-hmm. you don't like you don't say Mecca. You could say Gundam, and they would be like, "Oh yeah, that's a giant robot." Oh, like Kleenex? I think so. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm not Japanese. I 
I can't speak for it. I haven't experienced it. Um, there are statues of Gundam robots in Japan. It has had many been in many advertising campaigns. Uh, and life size statues have yes, been made. Yes. Yeah. And Toyota has released a car based on some Gundam designs. I would buy it. I would buy it. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe that just answers these questions. What is so special about it? James, why don't you just tell me? Um, giant robot bo- robots have been a part of Japanese culture for ages. Some people will go as far as to say they go back all the way to the 1600s or ideas of giant robots go back to the 1600s. I'm not going to get into that. Jules Verne, too, in the 1800s. But that Japanese culture, like especially. Oh, really? Likes the giant robots. The genre, I didn't do too much research into that. The genre really took off post-World War II, like you were explaining. And you will probably speak more to this, and we'll get into the creator, Tomono's ideas on this. But before Gundam, most giant robots were used by plucky teens to fight crimes. Uh, It was more lighthearted monster of the week. We've covered that earlier. Gundam changed and defined the genre by making it more real, like you were talking about. Uh, what was the genre again? Real Gundam? Real robots versus super yeah. mecha. Real robots. The actions and consequences of, giants ro- of giant robots fighting was modeled on what might happen in a real war. And the show, though, didn't become popular in the way that you would expect, that like the series airs and people love it. When the series first aired in Japan in 1979, it wasn't a hit. Japanese audiences were expecting it to be more like the lighthearted robot fight animes they were used to. It was, in fact, almost canceled after 39 episodes. But they negotiated negotiated with their sponsors and got 43 episodes. Then it abruptly ended. Wow. That blows my mind. So, well, people weren't watching it. So what happened? Bandai, a toy maker in Japan, acquired the rights to make Gundam toys from the company Clover. Clover was also a toy company and had been a sponsor on the show. It had scheduled the release of Metalcast toy models with the release of the show. And I I read that this was kind of standard for what the toy companies would do with the, you know, the rights or, you know, the sponsorship of a show. They would release toys to go with the TV show. Makes all the sense in the world. And these metal toy models were kind of standard, normal toys that were being made at the time. Well, how did this toy company affect a TV show. So Bandai reinvigorated the franchise by making Gumpala or Gundam plastic models. And this is hard to believe, but they were like no other toy out there, apparently. They were cheap, $3 or 3,000 yen, and they were a build-your-own kind of toy. And apparently they weren't even like easy build-your-own toys. They were complicated. You had to paint them and glue them with cement and very confusing, at least according to the internet. But they were super popular. The rise of the popularity of these Gumpala and reruns made the franchise become more and more popular. And eventually it did become a hit and enough so that they were like, oh, we should make more. Wow. So that's like a reverse G.I. Joe, because in America, we had the thing of we've made these toys. Let's build a TV show to mm -hmm. sell them. This was a TV show selling toys made from it. And then it it has the same effect. effect. And they were rerunning the show, so that definitely helped as well. Just to point out, today Gampala are still huge. They are only made in Japan, even while some other toy companies have moved production to cheaper foreign countries. And there are Gampala making competitions. Like who can build it faster? Best. Oh. 
who can build the best Gumpala. That is one of the nerdiest hobbies we have ever discussed on this show. <laughs> I'm glad we're doing this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, with the reinvigorated franchise comes money and many who want to make more money. There were many iterations of Gundam made, some made by the original creator, Yokishuki Tomino, and um, some made by other creators. Um Tomono said that he gave the rights to Sunrise Studios, the studio here we made the original Gundam with, because he thought it, be, it would be better for the series. And if he had owned the rights, it would never have gotten as big as it was now. I think that's fair. Um, but despite its popularity in Japan, Gundam didn't become big in the West till Mobile Suit Gundam Wing, which was not made by Tomino. And it didn't do as well in Japan. Uh, it first ran in 1995. It was the first Gundam anime to air on American TV, and it aired on Toonami. Now, different, like you know, dubbed versions or subtitled versions of the earlier Gundam pieces had been brought over to America, but never put on TV. And little James Foey and little Aaron Foey watched it on Toonami and <laughs> fell in love with giant robots and Gundam. So did you know this? It had an edited version during the day and an uncensored version with gore and death at night. Whoa. I knew, I yeah, Toonami had a special thing, right? Where it was like the, oh, I forget what it was called, but it was like 11 o'clock it would come on. I, don't, I didn't have Toonami. Yeah. I remember seeing someone get shot in Gundam Wing and being like, oh my God, that woman just got shot in this cartoon. No, not woman. It was a woman doing the shooting. She just shot that man in this cartoon. Yeah. And also significant. It was one of the first animes that wasn't significantly edited over when it came to America. So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, Yoshiyuki Tomono. I always have to pause before I say his name, make sure I'm saying <laughs> it right. He was born in Japan in 1941. He went to university and was in the art and cinema department. When he graduated, he wasn't actually interested in doing animation, but film in Japan, at least according to him, wasn't doing particularly well, and it was hard to get a job in it. His university had a relationship with Mushi Production, a Japanese animation studio, so he got a job there and was actually part of and got to direct Japan's first serialized anime, Astro Boy, which you talked about earlier. Yeah, that means he was there working on something that was the beginning of it all. Yeah, which is very cool. Um, he didn't like animation that much, though, and went into TV advertising, but he ended up not liking that either. He said it was actually harder to make ends meet, which just side note, I find so funny that it was easier to make a living doing animation in Japan than working in advertising. Yeah. He went back to animation, which he thought was childish, and that's why he didn't want to do it in the first place. But he said he thought at least it was somewhat lucrative, and he did freelance storyboarding and directing. He said when he came back to animation, he had a more pragmatic frame of mind. And with this, he worked on as many different genres as he could. He wanted to become as skilled as he could, um, so he accepted any type of work that came his way. While he was freelancing in animation in the mid-70s, he started meeting other people, though, who were looking at animation differently than him. They were looking at it, they were looking at it as making art. He often mentions Hayao Miyazaki. He is a very famous Japanese animation director. And uh, we have an episode on Princess Mononoke, Mononoke yeah. one of his greatest films. And he cites this time period as when his attitude towards animation changed and he realized what could be done with it. From 1977 onward, he said he started working, and by working I mean storyboarding and directing, on mecha-related stories. And in interviews now, he says that because of how much he'd worked on them, 
he thought he could do something different with them. And he wanted to make what he was working on less, in his words, uh, childish than was the norm. So now I'm going to talk about some of what influenced Tomino uh, and what he was kind of trying to do with Gundam. And I need to side note this with his interviews are sometimes a little bit hard to decode. And I think because everything he's saying doesn't translate seamlessly into English. So there are a lot of little phrases that I'm not 100 percent sure what he means. I'm going to I'm going to do my best. Oh, And for the record, reading interviews with him, I came across the same problem. Um, I'm glad glad it wasn't just me. No, you get the idea, but just some phrases can be taken differently. Yeah. And he's a smart, thoughtful person. It's Mm -hmm. just, you know, the language barrier with him is a little harder than others. Before he wrote Gundam, Tomino says he collected basic information about World War II. Basic information is what confuses me. But he talks about how most war-related media is one-sided. And really in war, and I suppose this is what he found in his research, is that you have two sides, and they both believe that they are right and are fighting for justice. He thought that mecha anime being shown at the time was too one-sided, and he wanted to show a war from both sides. And you touched on this in your segment as well. And since he thought the main audience would be children, he didn't want to guide their ideology, just have them look at the world without saying one side was bad and one side was good. Mm. He also studied World War One, And from that, this is a little bit confusing to me, but apparently there, he says that there was a, t- a type of chivalry when it came to fighting. But after World War One, it just became a huge conflict. I think this can definitely be argued. I think what he's referring to is what many of I've heard many say that uh, people walked into World War One thinking it was going to be like a 19th century conflict, and were and and then had the the modern horrors of 20th century war. Right. I just think war was always horrible and not probably chivalrous in the moment beforehand. Yeah, could be, but, but I mean, no, I I know what I understand what you're saying, the, and the, I know what you're talking about. The, the science of war really shattered that illusion for for so many yes, people in World yes. War One. So he wanted to put that manner of warfare in the story and show Christian culture, which he didn't think Japanese people know or maybe knew enough about. Um, Char, who is the antagonist in the series and hugely popular, he was once voted the fourth best anime character out of two thousand. Wow. He's pretty great. (laughs) Is based on uh, the Red Baron in World War II. Um, Yoshiki said that while studying uh, the Red Baron's life, he learned that one person couldn't affect the course of the war, which no matter how good you are, you can't change it. Unless you're in a super mecha. (laughs) Um, Beyond showing both sides of the conflict, he talks about how he wanted to build a story surrounded by a world that supported it. And I think this gets into your real mecca. Yeah. An example of this is that the tech uh, that eventually became fighting robots was originally made for building and expanding colonies in space. These became weaponized. You can see the evolution of the mecha suit. It doesn't just show up as a weapon and is super cool. Um, and I, I do really like that. Also, um, And this is something any critical piece about Gundam will come back to. I think you talked about, too. He wanted to focus on the human aspects in fighting. Like I mentioned before, it's two sides filled with humans that both think they're right. And he talks about to focus the drama, he and his team, and he is very adamant when talking about his work, about how much the team with him helped him. Yeah. 
did things like create radar so that there couldn't be long-range missiles. You talked about it, the um, Minovsky particle. And well, I didn't get into the Minovsky particles and how that works. It's actually a pretty novel idea for helping your space show. Right. So it brought the antagonists closer together because you couldn't just fire missiles right. and then when take pe- out the enemy from afar. When people release their Minovsky particles on their ships, it means that radar no longer works. Right. And so everyone does that to defend themselves, and it means you have to get up close and personal. It forced the characters to meet one another and made drama. Yeah. Maybe melodrama. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he talks about how he was building this vast universe in space, which is so huge and so empty, and it could easily have become this isolating thing. But because the characters had to get up close and personal, it gave empty space even more tension. And he gives so much credit to Miyazaki, who he says he learned how to build characters from, and Aiso Takahata, who he said he learned theatrical and dramatic elements from. And Takahata is also one of the founders of Studio Ghibli. That's who I would learn from if I had to go back in a time machine. Yes, who worked with Miyazaki. Yeah. Um, and because I think this is really interesting, this is some of um, Tomono's views on the world now. He is shocked, he says, that the world hasn't progressed since Gundam. In fact, he feels that it's regressed. And he said one of the reasons that he later made Gundam films was because he wanted his message of environmentalism, repeated mistakes, and the horrors of war to be conveyed more clearly. He believes that the older generations who originally watched Gundam should now be passing the torch to the younger ones and that they will be the one who changed the world. Um, he made the latest Gundam, uh, reco- how do you say that? Recogniz- Reconguista. Reconguista and G. For young people because he thinks the later series is preferred by teenagers and adults and he seems to truly believe that the future is in the younger generation and this is a quote from him uh this is from andrew osman on all the anime blog but what message does he have for his fans and this is tomino actually it is difficult to convey a simple message because there are many different generations of fans he says My message would be, if Gundam made them start thinking, I would like them to graduate from such an approach. If they they can't find answers, they should seek them from their children, the younger generation instead, instead of thinking of themselves. Repeated history shows the limitations of human beings, so I would like them to break through the limits. The struggle is described in Gundam. And I think that's what being a new type is about. He wanted the kids who watched it to be new types. Yeah, that makes sense. Also... Kind of sad, despite making many different anime series that have received praise and coming back to different iterations of Gundam, Tomono is very critical about himself and talks about how he hasn't produced what he calls outstanding work for 20 years. And I think this also his standard for outstanding work is so high. I just want to talk about where Gundam is in Japan right now. In 2000, the Japanese government classified Gundam RX-78 as culturally significant to the country. In 2007, the Japanese Self-Defense Force revealed its own mech power suit that would protect soldiers from gunfire and increase strength and mobility for soldiers and called it Project Gundam. Japan is launching two Gundam mechs on a satellite into space for the 2020 Olympics. You did it, man. You made it. <laughs> take a take a victory lap yeah. or something. You it know? would be frustrating, though, if I had had that high earlier in a career and could never seem to reach it again. Do you know what I think part of it is? What? Is that one of the early people that he learned from when they were not that oh, far apart Miyazaki. in age was Miyazaki. And so to us, we look at him and think, hey, 
Tomino, if you look at all other anime creators, you do really well. But if you compare yourself to Miyazaki, if that's what your benchmark is, that's that's pretty harsh. I think it'd be hard not to, though. Yeah, if you came up together, yeah. Before we get to opinions, I just want to give credit to Yoshikatsu Yasuhiko. He designed the characters and Kunio Okawara, who is responsible for the mechanical designs. Tomino was very clear that this was a team effort when building this. So I just want to make sure everyone gets credit where credit's due. Um, and now we're going to get into our opinion segment where I try and keep James. <laughs> Contained! <laughs> yeah. So um, you're a fan? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big old fan. Uh, I love Gundam, and this has been a, a wonderful thing to revisit for me. Um, I came into it with uh, Gundam Wing, as, as we were talking about, as I guess uh, all American kids did. There were so many articles about Gundam Wing and just how great it was watching it and how that introduced people to the series, which I was looking for stuff on the original Gundam and all this American press kept coming back to Gundam Wing because it's our generation that is now writing articles on Gundam. Right. And Gundam Wing, now that I've done this research, I realize is them saying, what if Gundam was a little more super mecha-like? And what if it was sexy? These characters aren't ones you relate to. These characters are ones you aspire to, you grody, ugly little child. <laughs> and they're in an awesome suit that very few people can have. But a consequence of that is that in part, a consequence of that is it doesn't have nearly the depth of Gundam. And that's what struck me about Mobile Suit Gundam when I first watched it. I loved uh, the drama and the intense emotional scenes between the characters, but I also loved the sense of danger and realizing that a character could die. They used to end every Mobile Suit Gundam it's episode. It's very Game of Thrones. It is, it is. But it's, it's it makes it very intriguing. Right, all these And you're always nervous. At the end of every Mobile Suit Gundam, and this blew me in Aaron's mind, Aaron's my younger brother, the uh, voiceover guy would come on and say, on the next Mobile Suit Gundam, who will survive? <laughs> we were like, <gasps> every episode, it ended that way. You had a nice episode. You're like, oh my God, they're going to kill him next episode. <laughs> well, as someone who just watched Gundam for the first time, I was very impressed. Um, I don't know what I expected. I think I kind of expected actually like the bad guy of the week type thing with these giant robots. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually expect this full story. Um, the It took a, a second to get into. And then once I did it, it was so compelling. And it, it's so interesting and so well done. And I feel like it that definitely has elements of Miyazaki where, you know, the bad guys who could be perceived as bad are doing some things for good. And then the good guys aren't always doing the best. I can see the influence there. Yeah, some of the bad guys just happen to live in yeah. that. Uh, in and are that. actually like qu quite good people. Right, I was just, I was gonna say, happen to live in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's the side they're on. Um, yeah, uh, one of, we, we talked about Char as a cool anime character. Um, yeah, he's very cool. He becomes an archetype for all these different Gundam universes. Whenever they do a spinoff, there's one character, a lot of times there's one character like Char, finally seeing the actual original character. Uh, he's the best of them. Yeah, he is. Uh, to me. I, I still think his backstory is so cool. Um, tell me, though, what did you think of 15-year-old Amuro Ray, the pilot of the Gundam? I thought in the beginning he was very hard to stomach just was this whiny kid. 
But as the show goes on, you realize that you have never been put in a mech suit and told to go fight these people where your life could be in danger at any, you know, at all times. And I've never been a refugee. And so, you know, I think he's a pretty good depiction of what it would be like to be dealing with that. He made me think. So as a kid, I hated him and then loved him. And like when he gets good in combat, it's like it feels like it's earned and that's wonderful. And you get to see his arc. But I, not just, and personally too, not just in combat, but he reminds me, what you were just saying reminds me of um, Memory, Sorrow, and mm-hmm. Thorns character in Ted Williams' series, the character of Simon, where it seems like, hey, you, the kid reading this book. This is you. This is you. This is actually you. Yeah. I can't say I would react better than him. I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> and and that's that that's the thing. I, I, I find that I found that more striking watching it now as an adult and find him actually more um compelling and relatable because of that. And it's a really bold play to make him that relatable instead of doing what Gundam Wing would do later and making them super cool. Right. I also I didn't understand where the series was coming from when I first started it. Again, I was expecting probably more Gundam Wing uh, type show. Uh, so it took me a long time to sympathize with him because I didn't understand what was being done with him. Like this whiny boy, you know, when yeah. all these other characters have it together, what's wrong with him? Yeah, he's a 15-year-old draftee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I want to ask you, why did we pair this with Evangelion? Because you decided on this. Actually, you and Kyle talked about it. Well, when we talk about um, uh Mecha anime. Well, one of the reasons is Neon Genesis Evangelion has uh, been re-released on Netflix in this really cool way that brought it back into the conversation as everybody looking at it again. And it's one of the most important anime ever made. And it's in a genre created by another one of the more, well, one of the most important anime ever made in Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, and they were very impactful to me when I saw them, and I thought it was a great chance to pair and explore them. And actually re-watching Gundam, knowing we were pairing it, I saw more similarities than I ever did when mm. I was younger. Um, yeah, especially uh, the one of the things that struck me as even more compelling about Gundam was the bit about being a new type, the idea of evolving into a more understanding person. Uh, Tomino talks about um, wanting to um, draw a a parallel to how human beings left the ocean and changed on land. What if we lived in space? Oh, what kind? I didn't read about that. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. And the way they bring it up in the show and uh, the way the government is trying to use these people to kill each other and how little their commanding officers, t- some of their commanding officers care about them, all of that meant so much more to me watching it's as It's very realistic. Yeah. Also, what I... What really struck me was the attitude towards war. And I know this is just pretty much one person's idea about it, but coming from a post-World War II Japan was very fascinating to watch a show that way. Right. Well, (laughs) related to that, one of the other bullet points, and I'll I'll let it go, but one of the last bullet points I didn't mention from my my thoughts was that they have sympathetic space Nazis <laughs> as part of their moral narrative. <laughs> Pretty hard to balance and pull that off. Uh, but they do it. They do it. They do. They so, do. But I think it makes more sense for a former Axis power to be able to look at it that way and show yeah, it to Yeah. No, it's so interesting. And we think it will pair well with Evangelion. By we, I mean you. Yes, because of two big things. One, it's a real robot uh, mecha anime in the genre Gundam created for the style of it, the science fiction of it, but two, more importantly, it is about understanding one another 
And we look at that through the lens of children in war. I can't wait. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm James Foey. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on social medias at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at James Foey Jr. That's at James F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. And Kyle, our other host, can be found at Klex 303 That's K-L-E-X-303. You can learn more about Mobile Suit Gundam on our Facebook page, and we're going to do a major upload about a bunch of research we've been meaning to put up there. Uh, That'll be coming out for Die and the NeverEnding Story as well. Once again, I'm your producer, James Foey. Uh, I love melodrama. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, who I think would fit very well inside a space opera. I was going to say super mecha. Ooh, yes. All right, take it back. A super mecha that somehow is also a space opera. (laughs) And uh, our music is done by Pete Rowan. Where does he fit? I think he'd like to pilot a giant mecha. Yes, because it's an incredible use of battlefield technology that can be done sitting down. (laughs) We love you, Pete. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.